sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello, and welcome to my study. Please uh, come in and have a seat. All the books surrounding you are those used to research our show, and the uh, individual here to my right, along with uh, managing uh, domestic duties, serves as our reader for any passages that will be directly quoted from these uh, sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. I suppose I should uh, first thank all the listeners who sent congratulations on our second anniversary. Yes, thank you. There have been some trials and tribulations over the last week, but we've managed to survive. And come out both on the same side of things, I'm happy to say. What does that mean? Just that it didn't end in conflict. When I took off those few days around Valentine's to visit Mother, there was some tension. Well, you did tell me in advance at least about Mother's Day. You just said some things about the last visit. I wasn't sure how you would react. I understand people want to take their mothers out on Mother's Day. Even I do that. But, well, the urn. I've been very careful dusting around it because I thought it was her ashes. It is, but certain restaurants will accommodate that sort of thing. I have a long-standing arrangement for a Mother's Day brunch. I see. Well... I do appreciate having the time off, and I'm glad I didn't end up turning back. Mother was very appreciative. I was just... I was just so worried about the visit with the virus and her being elderly. I started to worry I'd get her sick somehow. I wouldn't want to make a 12-hour drive. I certainly wasn't about to fly with this virus. I started thinking it was the wrong thing around the third hour, but didn't turn back until about hour five, or started to turn back. I was so confused. I'm glad to be clarified things. It was only a second I rolled down my window, and there it was in the car. What are the chances a regular bee would just happen to fly into my car at that very second? So you turned back around and drove all the way to Maryland with a bee in your car? No, no. I pulled over when I decided to continue on, but when I opened the windows, there was no bee. It was as if it were never there. But I knew I was doing the right thing by visiting that I should continue. Mother said that was the message, that I did the right thing. All for the best, then. Until I got home and found you'd set a tree on fire and burned your hand. It's just second degree, maybe even first, and I don't see how I could have avoided it. My food was at stake. It was uh, practically a man-against-nature situation. Any excuse to light a fire? The bonfires were to keep away the bear, or Mr. Petrovich, whatever got the food the delivery person left on the porch. I actually stopped the fire in that tree that was overhanging by moving those logs around. I just touched a hot one. As it was, I had no food that evening. I left you prepared meals. I'd rather have a blistered ham than microwave meals. Whatever it was, ate absolutely everything. It licked all the foil packages clean. 
the only thing left for some reason was the fortune cookie. And that's all I had for dinner, one cookie. Well, I'm very sorry. What was the fortune? That I would starve to death, I guess. Looks like you didn't. We survived. And lived to do another show. So let's just get to it. Episode 48, Slavic Mermaids, Water Ghosts, and Goblins. I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, explores the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the uh, generosity of our Patreon donors who receive a number of unique and sometimes uh, handcrafted rewards, uh, things related to our show and its themes. Uh, We've also added a a handsome new t-shirt on our website. It's a skeleton. Uh, More on all those options at the end of the episode. They used to believe that if you go walking by awake at night, the mermaid will get you. Roman saw a young woman at the lake. That's impossible. She's dead. I met her once and I can't forget her. You're hearing bits of the 2018 Russian film Mermaid, Lake of the Dead. While beautifully shot, it's a uh, fairly by-the-numbers tale of a soon-to-be-married man seduced and mysteriously sickened by a strange woman he encounters at a lake. However, it does sketch in the basic folklore of the uh, Rusalka, the word used for mermaid in the film's Russian title. Drowned women never let go. While this is also the Russian word used to describe the uh, Hans Christian Andersen-type mermaid, in its older, less multicultural sense, it denotes a creature of freshwater rivers and lakes, also always female, but never equipped with a fishtail. In fact, they can and do traverse dry land and are occasionally encountered in forests and fields. Sometimes the word's translated as water nymph, but water ghost is more accurate, as the Rusalka, since the 19th century at least, is regarded as the spirit of a deceased human female. Not just any dead woman. She would have died by violence, suicide, or sudden accident, uh, particularly drowning. That is, she would have died before her time, as they say, before she found love, or wed, or became a mother, or died without the proper religious rites completed, as in uh, this tale collected in Yizan province in 1916 by the Russian ethnographer Dmitry Zelenin. They tell that formerly the pond in the hollow was not large but mighty deep. Well, and a certain woman drowned in it. Even now she walks about the hollow, crying in a thin voice, clad in a white shift, with her tresses hanging loose. As soon as she sees anyone, she beckons him to her. It's clear that she is not at peace. You see, a funeral office wasn't sung for her, 
and she died without confession. And it still happens that she climbs out onto the edge of the hollow, sits and weeps. Many of us have seen her. Even dogs tuck their tails between their legs and begin to yelp and howl at her, only they don't go near her. The Rusalki, or Rusalki, uh, the plural, that is, are found not only in Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus, but also Poland, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Serbia, Slovenia, and Bulgaria. And they're honored with their very own holiday, Rusalka Week, just now coming up in early June, something uh, I'll talk about a bit more later. The 1872 book, Songs of the Russian People, by a British scholar of Russian culture, William Shedden Ralston, paints this picture of the uh, Rasalki. They are generally represented under the form of beauteous maidens with full and snow-white bosoms and with long and slender limbs. Their feet are small, their eyes are wild, their faces are fair to see, but their complexion is pale, their expression anxious. Their hair is long and thick and wavy, and green as is the grass. Their dress is either a covering of green leaves, or a long white shift worn without a belt. A number of 19th century paintings provide the uh, Rosalki with even less in the way of wardrobe, depicting them either nude or robed in mists. They're quite often portrayed in groups, dancing or singing, usually by night, though uh, during Rusalka week they emerge in the daylight and may be encountered on dry land. Shedden Ralston comments on something like uh, fairy rings left by their dancing. Where Rusalki have danced, circles of darker and of richer grass are found in the fields. Sometimes they induce a shepherd to play to them. All night long they dance to his music. In the morning, a hollow marks a spot where his foot has beaten time. Sometimes a man encounters Rusalki, who begin to writhe and contort themselves after a strange fashion. Involuntarily, he imitates their gestures, and for the rest of his life, he is deformed, or is a victim to the St. Vitus's dance. Of course, Rosalki are usually found by water, where they may drown swimmers or menace fishermen, often tangling their nets, or they may remain invisible, but can be heard laughing or singing in the wind or sound of lapping water or rustling reeds or leaves. A near-constant theme in stories of Rosalki is their desire for male companions and mourning for the love lost or not attained in life. A typical story collected by uh, Dmitry Zelenin from Russia's Samara region in 1916 tells of a widow who drowns herself in the Volga on the day the object of her desire marries another woman. Her body is never found, and soon rumors that she has become a Rusalka are confirmed. She would sit on the stones or on the edge of the dam and continually wash her hair or comb out her braids. And she would look at the house where Ivan Kochavki lived with his young wife. Then suddenly 
she would wail and cry out as sorrowfully as can be and throw herself into the water full force. There she remains. Living in a terrible whirlpool where the water boiled as if in a pot in both quiet and stormy weather, where the water rose up in a white swell. In the evening she frightened many people. Ivan began to grieve all the time and got into the habit of going in a boat to the whirlpool at midnight alone, as he could be with his zither, and he would play various songs. He would sometimes cry out, sometimes whistle, sometimes start laughing like a demon, sometimes draw out a plaintive song. Well, on hearing this, Marina Rusalka would jump out of the water, throw herself into the boat to Ivan, and set about caressing and embracing him and laughing in such a terrible way. Ivan kept right on going to the whirlpool at night, and then he vanished without a trace. They didn't find either him or his zither, only the oars and the boat by the bank. The Rusalka's mournful combing of her hair may remind listeners to our uh, Banshees episode of that figure, or certainly of the Western mermaid and her comb. Sometimes it's said that the uh, Rusalka may comb water into her hair to stay alive and that the comb itself produces this water. Um, Other times, uh, the Rusalki emerge from the water with hair dry, loose, and flowing. In any case, this uh, focus on hair that's uh, combed out and hanging loose in cultures where married women traditionally cover or braid their hair is the same you might find in tales of witches or banshees. And it's an important symbol of the dangerous outsider status or seductive power represented by such female figures. The men targeted by Rusalki become insanely obsessed, as in our story, or may grow weak or sick, as in the uh, Russian film we uh, opened with, but most often, stories see them dragged below the water where they either drown or are forced to live as lovers or husbands of the Rosalki in their underwater kingdom, generally understood as a dreadful fate, uh, despite the fact that these mermaids are said to live in sumptuous underwater palaces of gold, silver, crystal, and precious stones. While Rosalki are less inclined to attack women, they may sometimes capture girls and boys to be kept as the children they failed to have in life. Should they kidnap an infant and attempt to nurse it, however, tragedy ensues, as milk from their breasts is poisonous. Drowning suicides that become Rosalki are often the result of unwanted pregnancies, so the mermaids are also sometimes said to birth these children in their underwater lair. Infants may also become Rusalki if they die unbaptized, or like adults if they die through violence, through miscarriage or abortion, and and should parents angrily declare of misbehaving children, may the devil take you. He will, and he'll give the child to the Rusalki to raise as their own. Folklore provides the unbaptized infant a chance to escape his fate. He's given seven years to wander the earth to find someone willing to christen him. If not, like other Rusalki, he remains in limbo till the end of the world. 
Some stories, therefore, describe Rusalki emerging from the water to ask fishermen if the day of judgment is near at hand. Similar uh, Christianizing action might, on occasion, save an adult Rusalka. Uh, an informant in uh, Vladimir Dobovorsky's 1898 study, data for the folk calendar of Smolensk province in connection with popular beliefs, relates a story involving the informant's great-grandfather subduing a Rusalka encountered by the Dnieper River by forcing her to stand upon a cross inscribed on the ground and... Quickly throwing the cross he wore around his neck over her head, then the Rusalka submitted to him. After this, he brought her home. The Rusalka lived with my great-grandfather for a whole year. She willingly carried out all women's tasks, but when the next Rusalka week came, then she again ran off. Another tale, collected by Dmitry Zelenin in 1916, has a man under the spell of a Rusalka for a much longer period. About 80 years ago, a certain peasant was bewitched by the charms of a Rusalka. His passion continued for more than 10 years. Not one magic healer was able to cure him. Once, when the stove was burning, the lad caught sight of the object of his love in the fire. Assuming that his beloved was burning and wanting to save her, he threw himself into the raging stove and perished. While the Rusalka can bewitch men in the form of a seductive female, in some regions they can appear in a hideous guise as a gruesome drowned corpse or, uh, according to Shedden Rawson, also as... Hideous, humpbacked, hairy creatures with sharp claws and an iron hook with which they try to seize on passers-by. Grotesque breasts are also mentioned, sometimes so pendulous as to be thrown over the shoulder, others tipped with green or iron nipples. The poison milk they produce may be forced on an unfortunate mortal, and parents warning children to avoid the Rusalka's haunts say she'll grind them in a mortar with her ponderous breast. It's likely that this type of Rusalka as a children's bugaboo represents a degradation of a more ambivalent or even benign spirit of pagan times, as I've discussed, uh, occurring with Frau Perste in the uh, Austrian Alps. There's evidence for the uh, Rusalka's uh, older connection to fertility in Rusalka Week celebrations, but it's particularly clear in Ukraine where there's a myth of the very first Rusalka, or a creature that's mostly identical, known as the Mavka. She was a fertility goddess named Kostromo, who, after unwittingly marrying her brother Kupala and later discovering the truth, attempts to drown herself, thereby becoming a Mavka. Kostromo became the name of a straw figure that is uh, burned or mourned at a ritual funeral during the Rusalka week in Ukraine, a rite that's uh, explicitly said to promote fertility in the land. There's also a Ukrainian musician performing under the name Mavka, whom you're hearing now. The lyrics of her songs are composed in an invented language, which she describes as the language of mermaids.
this uh, Rusalka week or Rusalia or Trinity week has many names. The last of these coming from Trinity Sunday, which is the uh, Russian Orthodox name for Pentecost or Whit Sunday. The date is calculated as the uh, seventh week after the movable date of Easter. And the most festive day of that week is not as much Sunday as Thursday, known as Simic from the uh, Russian for seven. That would be uh, June 7th this year. If all this sounds very Christian, rest assured that celebrations appear far more pagan than anything. Lots of emphasis on nature's vegetative fertility, as uh, Ralston Shedden describes it in his book. All over Russia, every village and every town is turned into a sort of garden. Every house and every room is adorned with boughs. Even the engines upon the railway are for the time decked with green leaves. On the eve of Whit Sunday, the churches are dressed in green, as ours are at Christmas. Another name for this period, by the way, is Green Christmas. As this was a time when the uh, Rosalki were extremely uh, active, even in daylight, it would be particularly dangerous to be near water or to fish. In fact, all work was suspended out of respect for the Rosalki and one would be unwise to venture forth without a cross or certain herbs that would uh, repel the creature, as in this tale collected by P. V. Ivanov in uh, 1893 in eastern Ukraine. On Thursday of Trinity Week, seven girls set out for the forest for flowers, and having gone a considerable distance from the village, they encountered several Rusalki who had the appearance of ordinary women. On coming up next to the girls, the Rusalki asked them, What do you have, wormwood or parsley? The girls up front, who were experienced and familiar with these matters, answered, Wormwood. But the young girl who was walking behind all the others was inexperienced, and what's more, very rash. And she said, laughing, Parsley. Your soul to me, shouted the Rusalki. And they threw themselves on her and tore her to shreds. Another version, this uh, quoted by Shedden Ralston, ends uh, this way. But if he says parsley, they exclaim affectionately, Ah, my douchka, and begin tickling him until he foams at the mouth. Yes, that's right. Tickling is actually a quite common mode of attack with the uh, Rusalki. I didn't know tickling could make you foam at the mouth, but perhaps I've just never been tickled adequately, and I suppose it's a part of being tickled to death. During Rusalka week, or Rusalia, uh, particularly on Semic Thursday, the relatives of drowned or strangled persons go out to their graves, taking with them pancakes and spirits and red eggs. The eggs are broken, and the spirits poured over the graves, after which the remnants are left for the Rusalki. And songs are sung at these graves, such as the one you're hearing, recorded at uh, Semic festivals that still go on in some villages. Offerings are also left on riverbanks, crossroads, farmers' fields, or along roads that traverse the forest. In the woods near certain villages, an elaborate ritual called the bending of the birch or uh, the christening of the cuckoo, or by other names, still takes place in a number of variations. 
It's uh, restricted to unmarried girls or newly married women and takes place in a birch wood around two adjacent trees, the branches of which are bent or uh, woven together and decorated to form a sort of uh, bower for a doll called a cuckoo. These uh, doll figures are crafted from a type of swamp grass known as cuckoo's tears and dressed up in costumes made of little bits of cloth. Uh, part of the rite also involves a kiss exchanged by pairs of girls through a wreath of birch branches. A bit of uh, cuckoo magic binding them as uh, lifelong confidants. Following this is a uh, picnic understood as a sort of christening feast for the doll after which it's placed in a miniature coffin and buried in a place known only to those who have undergone this rite of passage. As cuckoos are frequently said to represent the wandering souls of unbaptized children, this uh, symbolic christening can be understood as uh, freeing the soul from its existence as a, uh, a restless rusalka, and the burial as allowing the proper passage to the Christian heaven. The final day of the festival, the Monday after Pentecost or Trinity Sunday, is marked by the symbolic banishing of the Rusalki in the form of another doll or dummy crafted from straw or greenery, one thrown into the water or burned in a bonfire or torn to pieces. Crowns of flowered greenery worn throughout the festival are also tossed into the river or lake, and their behavior on the water is observed for clues to future fortunes in love and marriage. This emphasis on the burial or banishing or destroying the Rasalki is only one aspect of this ancient festival as it focuses on the notion of the Rasalki as the uh, troublesome spirits of the dead. However, offerings left out can also be understood as bribes to gain the Rasalki's favor as they're also associated with life-giving aspects of water and are said to control the weather and thereby the fate of the crops. Rituals involving greenery and trees also point to the Rasalka's connection to fertility, and the dances performed by girls and women wearing leafy crowns are also said to imitate and encourage the Rasalki's presence. These aren't necessarily contradictory aspects, as the dead in pagan thinking reside within the earth or waters a place which functions as a sort of boundless and eternal storehouse of seasonal vitality. The festival is first mentioned in the 12th century by clerics suspicious of its uh, pagan nature. In 1551, St. Nestor, the author of Russia's primary chronicle, described the rites of Rusalia, or Midsummer, as the two are sometimes merged, depending on which calendar is in effect, the Gregorian Justinian calendar, in a uh, typical saintly and spoilsport fashion. He says it's a time when men and women and unwed girls come together for excitement at night, and for immoral talk and demonic songs, and for dancing and for jumping, and for deeds against God. I should mention a few more films and adaptations of Rusalka themes. Uh, Russian novelist, poet, and dramatist Nikolai Gogol included uh, quite a bit of Ukrainian folklore in some of his stories, particularly in his uh, 1831 collection of stories, Evenings on a Farm near Dikanka, 
which uh, includes a story titled May Night or The Drowned Girl, in which we find this description. In a silvery mist there moved, like shadows, girls in white dresses decked with mayflowers, gold necklaces and coins gleamed on their necks, but they were very pale, as though formed of transparent clouds. The book was strangely woven into a 2017 Russian TV series called Gogol, in which the writer is brazenly reimagined as a sort of supernatural sleuth. Gogol. The show, which I'll link in the notes and is available subtitled online, is actually quite fun despite its wacky premise. And the first season features a Rusalka in a recurring role. A second season borrows bits from Gogol's story V, a wonderfully folkloric tale featuring demons battling with priests and a nocturnal witch ride during which a Rusalka is briefly encountered. Uh, the uh, 1967 adaptation of the book, uh, titled V, Spirit of Evil in uh, English, omits the uh, Rusalka, but it's a highly watchable cult classic, and I'll link that one on the site, too. Hey. Opera offers the uh, best-known adaptations of the uh, Rusalka motif. A uh, lesser-known opera from a story by a better-known author is... Uh, Alexander Dargomiski's Rusalka, which premiered in 1856. It's based on a nearly complete drama in verse by Alexander Pushkin. Incomplete thanks to the author's brother-in-law, who, after attempting to seduce Pushkin's wife, was challenged by the writer to a duel, which Pushkin lost. The story begins at a mill on the Dnieper River where the miller's daughter, Natasha, is visited by her lover, a prince who has arrived with uh, bad news. He's going to marry a woman more suited to his class. And Natasha has her own news that she's carrying the prince's child. He departs and the grieving Natasha throws herself into the river and well, you can guess what happens to her. The prince is haunted by the death and mopes around the riverbank where he meets the miller who has uh, gone somewhat mad since his daughter's death and now insists that he is a raven. The next scene takes place in the underwater mermaid realm. Natasha, now called Rusalka, has a proper name, uh, rules there as queen. Her daughter, Rusalchka, or a little Rusalka, is uh, with her. Pushkin's story ends there, with uh, Rusalka plotting revenge on the prince with her daughter. But the uh, libretto ends with the daughter emerging from the underwater world to encounter the prince at the ruins of her grandfather's mill. She calls on him to join them below, and while those in his entourage try to hold him back, the mad miller rushes out and shoves the prince into the river where he drowns. Czech composer Antonin Dvorak, who was known for his uh, adoption of folk motifs in his work, in 1900 took on the theme with his uh, very own opera called Rusalka. It's the uh, better known of the two by that name, particularly for the Act One aria, Song to the Moon, sung by the lovelorn Rusalka. 
Rusalka is also pining for a prince in uh, this story and in that song. Uh, she's already a mermaid at the start of the story, but now wants to become a human in order to be with the prince. Hoping to effect this uh, transformation, she goes to a witch called Yezibaba, which is the uh, Baba Yaga figure for the uh, Czechs, Poles, and other West Slavs. The uh, witch tells her that she has the potion that will do the trick, but that she must give up her voice, and that if the prince doesn't accept her, he'll die, in which case she'll forever remain a mermaid. Undeterred, she downs the potion, finds favor with the prince, and they're married. But the uh, mute bride isn't quite what the prince had in mind, and he soon finds himself attracted to a foreign princess for whom he leaves Rusalka. Now, wishing to return to her mermaid form, she learns that she must stab the prince in order to affect this transformation. When the prince visits the lake, she can't bring herself to do so. So instead, they share a final kiss. The prince dies of grief, and his death transforms her back into a Rusalka. If the uh, mute mermaid theme sounds a bit familiar, it's because Dvorak's librettist, uh, Yaroslav Kvapil, was influenced by Anderson's The Little Mermaid, but even more so by medieval legends of the Undine. But uh, those legends are a topic for a future episode. Dvorak liked to say the opera was inspired by the poems of Karel Jeremia Erben, uh, published in an 1853 collection called Ketitsa, which means bouquet in Czech. Uh, Erben's poems were an important element of uh, Czech nationalism and are still known by schoolchildren today. But the connection seems to have been made uh, more out of uh, nationalist pride than any uh, narrative similarities. Uh, there's also a 2000 Czech film adaptation of the book, which straddles a line between the visionary and um, high camp, but it does include witches, ghosts, and a spinning wheel made of bones. Uh, its uh, English title is Wildflowers, and I'll also try to link that one online. <laughs> The father of Rusalka in Dvorak's opera is a creature called a vodnik, a Czech term usually translated as water goblin. Similar words are used by Poles, Slovakians, and Bulgarians. A Russian version of this character, the Vodyanin, is regarded as a male equivalent of the Rusalka, and maybe the spirit of a drowned male, but the uh, Czech equivalent doesn't seem to be, or at least there's no real effort to explain its origins in those terms or others. He's just a frightful male creature who lives in rivers and lakes. The Votnik takes on some uh, frog-like features, or maybe a naked man covered in nothing but algae, but he's uh, usually dressed in ragged old-fashioned wardrobe, predominantly green, and usually has a beard and a tangle of hair that's also often green. In fact, he could sometimes almost pass for human when he uh, chooses to wander onto dry land, except for his uh, perpetually dripping coattails. He enjoys a range of normal human pastimes, like smoking, playing cards, and the violin. The Russian Vodyamin is uh, closer to the Rosalka, and like uh, her, emerges in the spring. He's more often portrayed uh, as a naked or bloated old man covered in slime or fish scales, and was often called grandfather by the peasants. 
both characters are certainly mischievous, though not necessarily are always evil, and may be persuaded to uh, help fishermen who uh, traditionally throw a little bit of tobacco into the water for them to enjoy. Otherwise, they may uh, tangle their nets or overturn their boats or drown them as they do with swimmers. They're often found in mill streams, adopting a particular mill as a home and expecting gifts from the miller to ensure the mill's safety and productivity. The uh, Vodnik, unlike the Vodjanin, uh, captures the souls of humans, keeping them in small uh, pots or cups and growing more powerful and prestigious every time he adds to his collection. The characters are fairly well known from fairy stories and Erben's poems, and you'll find a statue of the uh, Vodnik in Prague on the site of an old mill. A Vodnik named Chepicek even had his own uh, cartoon series in the 1980s in the uh, Czech Republic. He was a good-hearted type, continually tangling with a uh, greedy miller and blustery count and countess. The uh, Russian Vodyanin uh, only got an animated short, a 1979 production from a traditional tale called The uh, Flying Ship, and in it we hear a song in which he laments being stuck in a lake with leeches and frogs for girlfriends, as he says. Though Erben's collection of fairy stories didn't provide an actual Rusalka story for Dvorak's opera, it does include one about a Vodnik, a creature here much more malevolent than the father in the opera. And Dvorak composed a symphonic poem interpreting this tale, which you're hearing. In the poem, a mother anguished by a premonition of her daughter's uh, misfortune at a lake warns her not to go near the water or even to wash laundry there. But the warning is disregarded, and she is dragged below by a Vodnik. There, in his uh, underwater castle, he marries her at a wedding attended by black crayfish as groomsmen. They eventually give birth to a child, but the woman still pines for one visit to her mother on dry land. Amid warnings and threats, the Vodnik allows this one visit, but she must leave behind their child. Overjoyed to see her daughter mysteriously alive again, the mother refuses to let her return to the Vodnik, who grows impatient, emerges from the lake, and visits the mother's home. But when he bangs on the door, demanding that the woman return home to feed her hungry baby, he's ignored. The Vodnik storms off and stirs up a gale from his lake. And uh, we'll conclude this uh, story with uh, Erwin's own verse from a recent translation. On the lake, the storm is shrieking. In the storm, the child screams shrill, screams that pierce the soul with anguish. Then they suddenly fall still. Oh, my mother, please, oh, please. At those cries, my blood will freeze. Mother mine, oh, dearest mother, Fear of him my heart does fill. Something fell beneath the doorway. Moisture trickles tinged with red. When the old one went to open, what she saw filled her with dread. In their blood two objects lying sent cold terror through her flying. Baby's head with 
without body, tiny body with no head. Well, that would certainly be a grisly enough note on which to end our episode. I wanted to return for this uh, final bit to something odd I mentioned earlier. That is the notion of uh, Rusalki tickling people to death. All week I was wondering about this idea and what stories there might be out there about people being tickled to death. I started doing a little internet research and ended up going some places I regret. I can report that as a sexual fetish, the idea of being tickled to death is alive and well. Hence, the 2012 movie, Fetish Dolls Die Laughing. You know the story of the Tickle Monster? The Tickle Monster is gonna get you. In which a pornographer calling himself the Tickle Monster dispatches women in this way. Fetish Dolls Die Laughing. Let's go. But on a more historical note, it seems the Chinese of the Han Dynasty did employ a form of tickle torture, though I don't find evidence that it caused any deaths, but uh, one can never be sure. Uh, 1502, tracked on torture by the Italian jurist and monk Franciscus de San Severino, asserts that the ancient Romans would apply a uh, salty substance to the feet of an immobilized miscreant and then bring in a goat to lick that off, resulting in some agonizing sensations. There's quite a lot more on death by laughter, actually. The 5th century Greek painter Zeuxis allegedly died laughing at his own painting of Aphrodite, presumably either uh, something very rude or very poorly done. And in 1410, King Martin of Aragon was said to have died laughing at a joke by his favorite jester. Pietro Arantino is another case. He was a 16th century Italian satirist and a writer of erotica who penned a uh, farcical last will supposedly left by the uh, pet elephant of Pope Leo X. He was said to have died laughing at a dirty joke. And the Scotsman, Thomas Urquhart, died giggling at the very thought of Charles II becoming king. But my favorite is the mythological death of the ancient Greek seer Calchas. His death came as a wonderfully self-fulfilling prophecy when he heard, with great incredulity, a prophecy from a rival regarding his imminent death. He must have felt quite healthy because it struck him as so absurdly, impossibly untrue that he burst into gales of laughter of escalating intensity, reaching such force that it finally killed him. I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you uh, might have the opportunity to share episodes with friends if you do. If uh, this show has been valuable to you through this lockdown, we would love to have your support through Patreon. Under the circumstances, we're also experiencing some extra obstacles in getting shows out, so anything you can do is very much appreciated. You can find our donor link on boneandsickle.com or just Google us. 
Patreon members have a choice of rewards, including exclusive access to extra elements that go into the making of the podcast, digital downloads of rare books used in the preparation of the show, the uh, episode soundscapes you hear in the background, my Krampus book, and a special mystery kit mailed to our top-level donors, as well as our new edition of a t-shirt, which you can see on boneandsickle.com. Donation levels begin at $1 a month, and your support via Patreon is the sole support that pays for the more than 100 hours of work that goes into each episode. We understand that things are a bit tight now with the economy, so if you can't donate, another thing you could do that would be very helpful would be to leave a review. I do want to thank our new patrons, Matthias Hansen, Zach Hewitt, L. Stern, uh, Jessica Myers-White, Mark, Neil Cochran, Busy Mom Weaver, and also thank Shauna Bracken for upping her pledge. If you haven't yet, we invite you to visit our website, boatandsickle.com, where you'll find links to our Facebook group, Twitter, and Instagram, along with show notes with plenty of images and video links to uh, the film trailers, clips, and music used in the program. Sound design otherwise is all original for this show. The show is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer, Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>